One of the things that is is a big question that comes up in the church at the beginning here as, as they're working things out with the admission of the Gentiles is the question of what does it look like to turn to God? That, that really is the center of what Acts 15 is all about. What does it look like to turn to God? Acts 15 records uh, a major controversy that, that begins to to come out. And you'll notice the issue is stated uh, in a number of ways. You'll notice in verse 1, it, it says there that uh, men came from Judea and they went uh, teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And verse 5 then also states it in another way. It is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. So what you have happening here is a question about the Gentiles. And the question is not, can Gentiles be saved? That's already been answered in chapters 10 and 11. Because you have Peter who goes to Cornelius' house. Cornelius and his household are, are baptized. Holy Spirit falls on them. All of these things indicate that Gentiles are included in the kingdom of God. But a question comes up, what more do they need to ultimately do? What is required of them to turn to God? And one of the things that you're seeing in these first five verses is the question seems to be regarding circumcision. Do they need to go back to the law of Moses and keep certain elements of the law of Moses so that they can continue in this salvation. And one can imagine that the argument would have sounded very plausible. I think of myself in the first century and try to think about what this would have sounded like. The sign of circumcision was a way to show that you belonged as God's people. So surely Gentiles need to be circumcised, right? I mean, it's one thing that was what was done is if they're going to be long to the covenant and belong as the people of God and belong in this kingdom. Sure, the Gentiles can belong, but then they need to be circumcised to show their admittance. And that seems to be what is, what is at stake here is are there certain elements of the law of Moses that need to be kept in order to turn back to God and belong in this community of saved people. What is also interesting is if you know Galatians, you'll you'll know that this is something that was a struggle even among Peter and Barnabas. Where we are told there when it came to Peter that he would eat with Gentile Christians. But then when the Jewish Christians would come along, he would kind of back away from them and not eat with them anymore. And Paul writes in Galatians that even Barnabas was caught up in this, that there is a concern about all of this in regards to can Gentiles, as they come into God and they come and are saved, what more needs to be done? And I would submit to you that that is an important question, because I believe everybody in the room is a Gentile. And therefore, the question as it arises, is there something more, is a very big deal. And chapter 15 shows that this becomes a, a quite a big, such a dispute, quite a big ordeal that you have then everybody coming together and talking out this situation. And the way that they come about this conclusion, I think, is important and is very instructive for us because it's going to show us what does God expect for his people to turn to God. 
You'll notice in, in verse 6, as they all are gathered in Jerusalem for trying to determine this answer, the first thing that we see is that Peter makes his first statement as they are gathered together, and he reminds them in verse 7. Notice that verse 7 says there's been much debate. You know, this isn't just something that, you know, we talked for five minutes and we got it all figured out. There's quite a discussion, quite a controversy that is brought up about this. And Peter says, I want to remind you about what happened, that in the early days God sent me as the one to be the mouth to the Gentiles that should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Verse 8, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. He begins by just reminding them, I went to the Gentiles. God selected me as the one to go to Cornelius, go to his house. And they are all, all then received the Holy Spirit, making no distinction between us, important us, us Jews, and them Gentiles. No distinction was made whatsoever. The offer of salvation is given. They received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Nothing in there that happened where God said, now wait just a minute. Before we do that, there needs to be something else. And so you have then the Apostle Peter reminding them about what happened when Peter had come to Cornelius' house. So notice the conclusion that he draws in verse 10. He says, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. I want you to notice what he describes this as. Why are you putting a yoke on them that we couldn't even keep ourselves? Why would we go back to the Mosaic requirements? Why would we go back to the law of Moses When that was something that we couldn't keep. And I think that's an important reminder about the function and the purpose of the law of Moses is that the law of Moses was not given as if there was the belief that anybody was going to actually be able to accomplish it. There's only one guy who did that. (laughs) Nobody else ever did what the law of Moses said to do. And Peter is coming in at this moment and saying, if we're going to go back and bring in the law of Moses, we have problems. Why are we going to put a yoke on them, Gentiles, that we Jews couldn't keep? There's something that we couldn't do. The whole point of the law of Moses was to show that we needed a savior. The whole point is to show if God just gives us a code of laws and says, do them and you will live, we all have a problem. That was always so ironic when Jesus come along and say, you know, here, do these things. And they answer, oh, I've done that. And Jesus goes, well, let me, let me probe that because no, you haven't. We like to think we've kept the law of God, but that's only because we think of the ones that we've kept. We haven't thought about all the ones we haven't kept. And so here is the picture that Peter begins with is saying that turning to God is not about going back to the law of Moses and saying there are requirements that are found there that we need to keep. And I think this is an important aspect about what Peter establishes. And I think it's an important aspect because there is the tendency still to do this today where Peter is making the argument. We can't go back to the law of Moses and pull circumcision and say, "Okay, all the Gentiles need to be circumcised for them to turn to God. 
Now, I'm not aware of any groups today that are saying that. Nor do I find groups today who will go back to the law of Moses and pull sacrifices. But it is interesting how often people will try to go back to the law of Moses, pick a requirement, pick a regulation, pull it forward and say, we need to do one of these things under if we're going to come to God. That there is some kind of requirement, there is some regulation back there that we must do that thing. And if we do that, then we can belong to God. Uh, probably one of my, my favorites, most of them will say tithing. Tithing is a requirement found under the law of Moses. What does God call for under Christ? But you will just be a cheerful giver that you would just give from your heart. But sometimes there's a tendency to go back and pull tithing. Some will pull the Sabbath. Some will pull back instrumental music. Some pull back a dedicated uh, priesthood. Uh, Right now, dietary laws. Let's go back to the dietary laws of the old covenant. No, let's not do that. The old covenant is not by the things that we're saved. Uh, People will go back and define modesty there, piercings, tattoos. It is fascinating to watch how many people will go back to the old covenant, pick some sort of regulation that is found there, pull that forward into Christ and say, you can belong to Christ, but you also need this other regulation that's only found there. That's what they were doing. So they were picking a regulation under the law of Moses. And what the apostle Peter is saying is, why would we go back to that and put a yoke on ourselves that we know we can't keep? Why would we start picking and choosing regulations that are found under, under the law of Moses and put them under the law of Christ? We don't follow Moses. We follow Jesus. And that's the argument that the Apostle Peter is is making. And I want to highlight this point. And I didn't put it on the screen because it's not the main point of the lesson. But if someone tells us that there is something that we must do to be right with God. And can only show you that by going to the law of Moses. Then no. If somebody says the only way you can be right with God is if you do these certain things and the only place you can find that is under the regulations of the law of Moses. No. Be so careful that we are not under the law of Moses. I like to ask this trick question. How many of the Ten Commandments are we under today? A lot of people say nine. And I'll tell you zero. We are under zero of them. Many of them, Jesus brings forward and talks about what we must still do, but we are not under the law of Moses. And Peter's making this point. We can't go back there and pull that and put that upon ourselves. One of the great things that the apostle Paul declares in talking about coming to Christ and being baptized for the forgiveness of our sins and having those sins washed away is he makes the point in Colossians 11, verse four, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. He says that the law with all of its legal demands were nailed to the cross. All of those demands, we want all of those demands nailed to the cross. We don't want to start pulling back some of those things and say, well, here's what you need to do in order to turn back to God. And so that is the point that Peter begins with as he makes this point here, as this council has come together to discuss this issue in regards to what the Gentiles need to do 
to turn to God. Similarly, then the Apostle Paul, he gets up along with Barnabas in verse 12. And what he simply does in verse 12 is he just starts describing all the things that that have, have, have happened. And it ties closely to verse 11 because notice when Peter ended his point, he says in verse 11, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will. And I find that interesting because people will come along and say, well, Peter in those first 10 chapters of Acts had a different gospel. And then Paul came along. He's talked about being saved by grace and saved by faith. Look at what Peter said in verse 11. We will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. And that was right before Paul stood up in verse 12. (laughs) And and is going to confirm the very same thing and write letters that say the very same thing. But here's what I want us to consider about being saved by the the grace of, of the Lord Jesus. Is that when Peter says that, and when Paul speaks to those things, that never means doing nothing. And here's how you can know that. Because in just a few verses, he's going to tell the Gentiles they have to do something. Right? There's going to be a list that he's going to give. Here's the things that they think need to abstain from all of these things. But Peter is going to make the argument here that they, just as us, are saved by the grace of God. And yet that doesn't mean nothing. It means there are certain things that are going to still be asked to be able to enjoy that that grace. And what I want us to see is when Peter speaks that way, and when the Apostle Paul speaks that way, what they are getting at is not going to the law of Moses for salvation, not going to those regulations and saying, it is by those things that we are going to stand justified before God. And that is the the beauty of what God was trying to show and what he was teaching, not only to Israel, but as well as to the Gentiles, is that there is no way that we are going to be able to come up with a list of requirements that we can look to and say, that means I am in right relationship with God. Just give me this list and do those things. That's why when you had people come up to Jesus and ask questions like, Hey, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus always pushed back on that. Why do you call me good? Are you even understanding where we're going with such a question? To think that there is a list of requirements that if I do certain things... That's going to put me in a right relationship with God. We sing a great song. What can wash away my sin? All the things that I just did. No, nothing but the blood of Jesus is able to do that. That is the argument that is being made here by Peter and by Paul as Paul speaks to the great things that that have been done by the hands as they've gone to these various cities proclaiming the gospel that if God was not with them, then these miracles wouldn't be performed, that God would stop them in the very work that they were doing. And so it is not that we are justified by doing certain things found in the law or being able to come up with a list. And it's one of the reasons we have to be careful about ever trying to condense it into a certain list of doctrines or things that if you do these things, then then you know you're okay. Trying to remember exactly how long ago that was. It was a pretty long time ago, but I I remember it was probably about... 
25 or 30 years ago or so that in an effort to try to figure out who exactly was a sound preacher, somebody or some church came up with 28 questions. If you answer these 28 questions correctly, then that would prove that clearly you're a sound person. That's the very problem we're talking about here is there's not a list. You left out an awful lot of things if you boiled it down to 28. This should be an awful lot thinner if there's only 28 things that we need to be talking about. This is really fat for only 28 things. We miss so much and so often what we want to do is try to come up with, well, what is the list of requirements? Just tell me what I have to do. And Jesus would never walk into that. Anytime anybody asked that question, he'd just say, well, what does the commandment say? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. How are you doing with that? Well, not too good. But so often what we want to do is make a list and say, well, if I do these certain things, that means I'm okay, right? And so Peter and Paul together are saying, There's not a list of requirements. We cannot go back and pull this list and put that on the Gentiles and say that is what's going to say that is necessary for turning to God. You have then in in the final section, then James, the brother of Jesus, uh, also going along and, and, and pointing out this. As well in verse 15 where he makes the point that the the prophets agree with what Peter and Paul and Barnabas are, are proclaiming. And he quotes from Amos prophecy where the prophecy is given in verse 16 as he quotes from Amos chapter 9. That after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who call by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. It took me a long time to figure out what is James' argument exactly. He simply quotes Amos and says, well, see, that proves it. Notice the promise was what God is going to do is he's going to return. He's going to rebuild. He's going to restore his kingdom. And if you've been with the studies that we've done earlier about the Holy Spirit, and I talk about all the R.E. words about what God was promising. He's always using restoration and rebuilding and renewal. And all those are are, are pictures of what God was going to do. And here's what Amos is proclaiming. And James quotes it. But notice how the restoration was going to happen. In verse 17, that the rest of humanity would seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who were called by my name. That's the the argument right there, even though he doesn't elaborate on it. What he points out from Amos is that the rest of mankind, the rest of humanity seeking the Lord did not require for them to become Jews. But they're called Gentiles. The Gentiles would seek the Lord. The Gentiles would be part of the rebuilding and renewing and restoration process. It wasn't that they would become Jews, go and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved, in order to turn to God. But rather they would remain as Gentiles. That is not keeping the law of Moses, not keeping circumcision, not following those regulations. They would remain Gentiles, not become Jews and still be saved and still belong to the kingdom of God. That's why he quotes Amos. 
is he goes, you know what? Amos always said that Gentiles were belonging. They weren't going to have to become Jews. See, all the way up to that point, that was the mentality. It's all right. If you want to belong to God, become a Jew. No, Gentiles are going to be a part of this as well. So this then gives the explanation now of what must Gentiles do in order to turn to God. So verse 19, he says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So here's the question. How are the Gentiles to turn to God? And it is interesting that there are four things that are stated, four things that are given. And you'll notice in verse 28, we're told that James says the Holy Spirit has confirmed this. So this isn't James going out on a whim and saying, you know, I think they should do these four things. In verse 28, when they write this letter and send it to the Gentile Christians, they say, this is what the Holy Spirit says. This is what God's will is for Gentiles to turn to God. And so as you read that, the big question is, well, what exactly are they being told to do? As he says there in verse 20, to abstain from things polluted by idols, to abstain from sexual morality, to abstain from things strangled, and to abstain from blood. What is the point? In fact, consider the point that's being made is something that James says is not new. Because notice in verse 21, it says, this has been said in the synagogues for a really long time. From the ancient, from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Basically, James just said, this is the way it's always been. Ancient generations, this has always been said, still said in the synagogues today. Well, I think it's important to think about, well, what is he ultimately saying? What is he asking? What is he telling them to do? And I want us to consider, clearly he's not saying all that Gentiles need to do are these four things and that's it. You know, just stay away from idols. Make sure your food's not strangled. Sexual morality, everything else, you're good to go. The New Testament would be a lot thinner If that was all that the requirements were, it can't be just saying, okay, here's the new law of God that only these four things. So what exactly is he talking about? Well, I think it helps that when you look at verse 20 and he says there are things polluted by idols, that you immediately start recognizing that these are requirements and obligations that go along with pagan practices and idolatrous worship. And that was extremely common in those days. One of the things that's hard for us to to wrap our minds around is, is how pervasive idol worship was. We live in a society where you have religion separated from daily activities. And in one way, that's a bad thing. And in one way, that's a good thing. And in their day and time, if you were to participate in various marketplaces and practices, normal society... That required 
idol worship. That caused you to do that. That's why when you come to the book of Revelation and it'll talk about this mark that people have that will no longer allow them to buy and sell and to enjoy uh, basically what our terminology would be going to the store to get food. Because in that world, that's what you had to do. Religion and society were put together. And here's the problem of what you have that you would be dealing with is you are coming to Gentiles who all their lives have been intertwined with idol worship. All their lives, their culture, the air that they breathe, everything that they do and everything that they've been taught is about paganism. It's about myriads of gods, whether you're a Greek or a Roman. That's your whole existence. That's the way of life. That's the way things were. And what I want us to think about what Paul is doing is trying to get them to understand that what it takes for the Gentiles to turn to God was not by adding the requirements of the law of Moses or following Moses or adding rules. But they were going to have to get rid of worldly behaviors that they've had all of their lives. They would go to the pagan temples. And he says, you got to stay away from the things that are polluted by idols. You have to stay away from sexual morality, which was intertwined with the worship of the gods back then. You have to stay away from things strangled, part of the pagan practices and the way that they killed the animals so that there could be blood that they would either drink or wear or use in a way to try to consult the gods. And so here is Paul and Peter and James and this whole gathering of Christians saying, Ultimately, here's what the Gentiles need to do is a full rejection of their culture because what they were doing in that day and time in a Greco-Roman world was completely against the ways of God. Now, here's why I think that's important. Because we live in a time, especially of the younger generations, who have a whole different cultural point of view than perhaps anything that we've grown up with who are older, who don't have a concept of God, who don't have that moral basis. And what's what the world was looking like in the first century where you would have to come to them and say, listen, I know that you were taught to go to these pagan temples And I know that you were taught that going to the temple prostitutes was normal and fine and good. And I know that you were taught that eating these meats and foods that were sacrificed to idols is fine. And participating in things strangled in blood. That's been your whole life. That's what you grew up on. That's just the way, way it's been. And now you can't do that. I know that's been your whole upbringing, but you can't do that. And that is the essence of, I think, the message of what we are learning here is that the idea of rejecting these worldly behaviors is realizing that turning to God means we don't allow the culture to define what is right and wrong. If we are going to turn to God, then we can't say, well, that's the way I grew up. Or that's the way things have always been. Or that's the way I was taught. Or that's what everybody does in the culture. That's exactly what they're working against in this text. Is saying, yes, Gentiles can come in and it's not the additional requirements of the law. 
but it is a rejection of doing things the way the world does. And I think that is a tremendous message and an important message for us today, because we have to remind ourselves that God and culture stand against each other more often than not. That what God says is right and true and good is not going to be the same as to what culture says is right and true and good. And what can be difficult, especially as we move forward and forward, generation after generation, further and further from God, we're going to look at what's going on in our world and say, well, that's normal. That's the way it's always been. And I want you to think about what this would have sounded like to the Gentiles whose life has always been about paganism and idolatry and sexual morality and worshiping gods and going into those places and saying to them, yeah, I know that was your whole life and I know that's the way things always were and I know that's the way you were taught and the way you were raised and the way the world looked and what your culture does. But to turn to God means you can't do those things anymore. And we live in a time, of course, in our culture where where do you want me to start and where do you want me to end on the things that culture has changed and redefined and adjusted. I mean, the air we breathe now is that people live with one another, sleep with one another, divorce each other. If they ever get married in the first place, deem all kinds of sexual behaviors as completely acceptable. Marriage has been been redefined. Gender has been redefined. Everything is being completely flipped upside down. And we have to understand that we're walking into that kind of world and that kind of culture. And the point is to show if we are going to turn to God, it does require us to say that we're going to live differently and think differently than the world. That was the challenge that this letter was possessing to the Gentiles. Now, there's a whole lot more than those four things, obviously, as to what it means to follow Christ. But the biggest thing, the biggest challenge for somebody to turn to God would be to take everything that you've grown up with in your culture that's been told to you to be right and good and say that's wrong. That's now sin. And you can't do that anymore. And that's the air we breathe. And that's the culture we're in. That we have to call upon people that turning to God means you can't live like the world anymore. There's a reason why in the Corinthian letters, Paul hit on that point so many times. You think about the city of Corinth to be Corinthian in and of itself was a definition of worldliness and debauchery and doing whatever seemed good to you. And Paul constantly would write to that problem in both the letters. I'll highlight one of them as we conclude. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16, he makes the point that we are the temple of the living God as God said. I will live in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So here's the promise. I'll be with you. I'll be your God. And you can be my people. You can live together in this great relationship and you can have God. But then notice the next sentence. Therefore, come out from them and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch nothing unclean. And then I will welcome you and I will be your father and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. 
the call of turning to God is about a rejection of what the world and the culture and the society says is acceptable to come out from that and to be separate, to think different, to live different, and to act different. And that's the challenge that's before us, is that it is easy for us to want to put the two together and say, I worship God and I do whatever I want to do and live however I want to live. It's easy to want to say, I worship God, but I'm living my life the way I've always been taught and I've always been raised and I'm just doing the way that I'm just living life the way I've always been. God says you can't do that. If you want eternal life, if you want to enjoy relationship with God, if you want God to be your father, then he's trying to pull you out of that. And to bring you into light and to show you the truth. And that we have to accept then that it is God's truths and God's ways that are the standard. And I suppose if you're like me, you're seeing that that's only getting harder. As our society and our culture sets up its own standards and its own rules and its own ways... It's going to be harder and harder to stand against that and say, no, I know that's not what God said. And the push and the force against what we see in God's word is going to get harder and harder and harder. As I like to say in a lot of our studies, here's the good news. What you're being asked to do was not any different than what these Gentile Christians had to do in the first century. Because you had a whole culture that pushed the exact same way and pushed really hard and said, worship how you want. Do what you want. It's all fine. And God says that if we're going to come to him, we reject the ways of the world and accept the ways of God. Uh, Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you give us pictures like these that remind us that we are not in a strange time in world affairs, that you have always called for us to be different. You have always called for us to be light and darkness. You've always called for us to challenge the cultural norms and to believe in your ways above the world's ways. Lord, I pray that you would help strengthen our faith to hold on to your word and hold on to your standards, hold on to your truths as the only way for our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for the times we have allowed ourselves to accept what the world says is right and that we've followed sin and we've followed culture. And so, Lord, not only forgive us, but give us a greater strength in the days ahead to cling to your word, to cling to your truths, and to follow them carefully. Lord, help us to be separate. Cleanse us from our sins. Make us different so that we can reflect your glory to the world, Lord. So often we just really mess that up, and we pray that we could be far better, far better being, and being lights and being salt. 
so that we would show how glorious and good it is to follow you above all else. Lord, we pray that we would turn from sin far more quickly. And Lord, we pray that as we go forward in our lives, that we would be far greater servants of yours in the days ahead than we have in the past. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a challenging message that those apostles wrote to the rest of those churches. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn from everything that you've known in your lives to be normal and good and listen to the ways of God. But that is God's call to you, is that you can have a new life and hope of eternal life if you will follow him with all of your heart. Turn away from sin. Turn away from this world's life and give your life to Jesus before it's too late. Can we help you do that? Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?